Well, good morning, everybody. Want to add? Uh, my my name is Joe Miller. I am the associate pastor here at New Hope Community Church, and I want to add my thanks to the young ladies that uh, that played for our offering. Thank you very much. Let's give them a round of applause. Um, thank you so much. That was uh, that was incredible. Um, great time of, of prayer that we can take and, and kind of uh, sit in silence and well sit and listen to that beautiful music. That was incredible. Um, so, yeah, we're here today and we're talking about kids ministry. Over the past few uh, Sundays, we've um, taken time out to think about the things that make New Hope, New Hope. Um, there's lots of things that uh, make up the Church of Christ, the Church Universal, um, but there's a few things that we want to make sure that we uh, communicate, the things that we can make clear um, to the congregation and say, these are the things that we take extremely seriously. And today, we're going to take time to talk about something that Jesus might say is really, 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 really serious about something seriously. And you can kind of figure out what that is uh, by the pictures that are, that are up on the screen and, and by some of the other content that we'll, we'll be talking about. But I also want you to think about um, how it might not be what you think that it is. We'll get into that later. I can say this. I wouldn't trade the environment that I grew up in for anything else. I grew up in a, in a good home, a home where values and uh, behavior and obedience uh, mattered more than accomplishments. As far back as I can remember, character held far more weight than competence in my home. I don't know if if you could say the same thing for the home that you grew up in uh, or the home that you're a part of now. But the truth is I'm grateful, I'm grateful for the soil in which I was raised. Uh, that being said, I, I didn't grow up in a church home. My first recollection of church was the moderately sized uh, Methodist church my family occasionally attended uh, because it was associated with my Cub Scout uh, past. Um, I had virtually no recollection of the minister or the Sunday school teacher. I remember three things about the place. One, that it was dreadfully boring. Um, I could still feel the vibrations of the organ combined with like hymns that seemed to go on forever um, in like the back of my head. Uh, the second was the fact that we fought as a family. We fought all the time whenever we went there. It must have been laborious just for my mother to get my brother and I, like, who were perfectly content watching Sunday morning cartoons uh, out the door. The third thing, though, was this kind music director who, although he led, you know, music that I thought was not all that exciting on Sunday morning, he also ran the church bell choir, um, which I was a part of. It wasn't exciting music, but it was my first experience with with being a part of some sort of ministry. And I got to meet people that, that church mattered to them. And um, I just started to get the feeling of that rich soil again. But still, church wasn't in my blood. Even in middle school, when my family started attending Grace Fellowship, I, I had no interest in attending Sunday school or youth group. The difference was the music and the preaching of, of guys like Pat Goodman at Grace. Um, still, the first few years, I probably spent more time 
daydreaming, I would, I would do this, I would daydream about what it would be like to fight bad guys in the rafters or the, because <laughs> uh, Grace had this big open ceiling, um, you know, and think, oh man, I'd be like hanging off of there and like beat the guy and, you know, probably wasn't really thinking about worship. It, it wasn't until I got to about 10th grade um, that the life of the church started to become a part of my life. And in time, it became my life. All of that was due to the work of the Holy Spirit and rich soil. The character-driven home my mother created for us was rich soil. The worship experience at that Methodist church, even though I felt it was a snore fest, was still rich soil, rich soil in some regards. And the ministry of grace, um, with its contemporary music and, and relevant preaching, was incredibly rich soil. It was funny, though. When I look back and think about my experience with the church growing up, it's radically different than the life of the kids that I see here at New Hope. Um, you all, and, and when I say you all, I'm not blowing smoke, I mean you all have some extraordinary children. Um, you're a church who loves kids very much, and you've worked hard at listening to the Holy Spirit and created this rich, rich soil uh, for growing men and women. I uh, have evidenced this myself uh, when we were thinking about moving in here. Um, I, I toured the place, and I was alone one day, just me and, and my son, James. And we're walking around, and we walked around this aisle here, and we looked at that back window. And if you see that back window, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a stained glass uh, of a book a crown, and a chalice, and a cup. And I said to James, I said, just out of curiosity, this is just, I just picked one. I just said, like, what do you, what do you think that's all about? And he says, well, the book's the Bible, and there's a crown because there's no king but God, and there's a chalice because chalice holds wine, and wine's like blood, and Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> and I'm like, doing a good job. <laughs> it blew my mind. That's evidence, not just of the rich soil of, of James's home life, but of his extended family here at New Hope. You see, before we get into kids' ministry philosophy and curriculum, we have to first consider the environment out of which ministry flows. What nutrients are we intentional about placing in our soil? What values do we hold in high esteem, not just for our own homes, but for our friends' homes as well? I made a joke a few weeks ago that if you're new here, you might come and, and see the kids that are here, and we have quite a few kids, and you might not be able to quite tell which kid goes with which family. If we look at the subject of kids' ministry from that point of view, from the view of God's community soil, then that means there is not one person in this room for whom kids' ministry is an employment. Regardless of your role here at the church, I ask you to do a personal inventory here this morning. In what ways are you contributing to that rich soil? In what ways are you standing for those values and those beliefs in, in the way that others can see? And in what ways have you simply regulated kids' ministry to something that happens in other rooms of the building so that adults can do important things here. Matthew records in his gospel, beginning in chapter 18, 
a time when Jesus' disciples came to him and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here again we see evidence of the disciples missing the point in regards to power and authority. Jesus' upside-down kingdom would have had them be the servants. It would have had um, shown them that the last is the first and the least is the greatest. We lead by serving. We implement victory by suffering for others. But they didn't get it, at least not here. So Jesus wants to show them an example of humility. He, he wants to put something vulnerable right in front of them and burn an image in their brain. And what does he do? He calls a child. And he doesn't just call the child. He doesn't just draw attention to the child. He, he puts a child among them. This is the first century world, the ancient world, the Roman Empire, occupied territory. This wasn't participation trophy, Nickelodeon loving America, even though the point probably could still be here, made here today, this was an example, a cultural example of humility, of vulnerability. How easy of it would it have been for the disciples to say, hey, hey, we're following the master here. We're taking part in the revolution. Keep the kids out of the way. And Jesus says what? Let's go to that second slide. Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I want to give Anne enough time, but a few important observations here. The first is the word change. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Any other sin, with the Spirit's guidance, we can repent our lack of humility and move in another direction. There is something precious about kids that humble us. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you need to hold your baby closer. The other observation from this slide is that we're called to serve such children. We build into them and provide a welcoming environment because apparently whoever welcomes a child welcomes Jesus. Apparently there's an intimate relationship between fostering rich soil and worship. The challenge, however, in this participation trophy culture is to make sure we're welcoming the child in Jesus' name, making sure that the glory goes to him and nowhere else. We live in a culture that worships kids. And yes, that culture has affected the church. Like anything else in the world, if it's not God you're worshiping, it's an idol. I love the wisdom of C.S. Lewis on this. He says, when you put first things first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Let me say that again. When you put first things first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When it's Jesus' name which drives me to serve children and I give the glory to his name first, I don't love those kids less. I love them more. When I welcome a child in Jesus' name, I'm serving kids by introducing them to their king. And that is a powerful call. And Jesus is going to remind us 
but the opposite is equally serious. Let's look at uh, the next slide. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Tell us of the human country. Millstones were often harnessed to donkeys for grinding grain. Sometimes they were used as anchors on boats. But I picture this comment really waking the disciples up. Apparently, Jesus is really, really, really serious about this one. Serious. Now, some commentators are quick to point out that the wider context of these verses is not necessarily about children. Jesus didn't put the child in their midst in order to teach them a lesson about kids. He wanted to teach them a lesson about humbleness and ultimately the community of faith. But he did put that child in their midst. It was by putting the child in front of them that he taught them a lesson. And if you haven't noticed, God has put a child or two in our midst. And I'm so glad that today we get to hear from kids uh, community director Ann Jones uh, tell us about our philosophy of kids ministry here at New Hope after which I'll add some closing thoughts. And So if we're to understand Jesus to be saying that we're to become like little children in the sense that little children are humble and trusting, there's no age group that's more dependent and trusting than those under the age of five. And currently at New Hope, because of the numbers, we have them all together, the nursery, the toddlers, and the preschooler age kids. And this is a very dependent age group. They rely on adults for everything from feeding to diaper changes. And while I am sure that Jesus is not suggesting that we emulate them in their self-centeredness or their temper tantrums, we can see in this age a role model for absolute trust. absolute trust, which will come up in a minute, the assumption that God's got it covered. Um, and we might not understand what God's doing. We might not even agree with it. In fact, we might even have temper tantrums about what God's doing. But the fact is that we have to believe that God is there and that he loves us. Just like the kids believe that their parents are there and that they love them and they trust that they're going to get fed for their next meal. And complete dependence and reliance on God. Is it coming, Mark? Or? Well, believe me, it'll be there some point. Um, so absolute trust that assuming God's got us covered and he's got our needs covered and dependence, relying on him for everything that we need. And this age group is one that can really teach us those two things. We can see them as models for how to do that. Joe mentioned the, um, the verses here. Whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. And that in a nutshell is what our um, goal is for that age group. That, um, that we want them to feel so welcomed and loved. 
because if we can ensure that their association of church and of God and of Jesus is one of love, if the memories that they're making about coming to church are part of the positive experiences of their childhood, then we've done our job. Because how they frame their church experience now, it's going to color their experiences and their sense of God going forward. So when Wendy or Beth or Kelly or Shannon or Steve or Tristan or Kanai or Caitlin or Craig or any number of the Willing Edge kids takes time to be with these little ones, they're focused on loving them well. Knowing that how they love these little ones is more than just a reflection of how they love Jesus. It is how they love Jesus. Which leads me to a really important point. There's no age requirement for being part of the body of Christ. Nicholas is not part of the next generation of the church. You can click forward, Mark. He is already part of the church. Juliet is not coming each week just to learn how to eventually impact the kingdom of God. She can and is doing that now. And sure, some of it's passive. When Tristan or Kelly show up to care for the kids on Sunday morning, they might learn a lot about how to love when love is difficult. But if we are willing, these little ones have things to teach us about the kingdom of God, to teach us about trust and about wonder. They have energy and eagerness to share, and we would do well to remember that they are not going to be the church. They are already the church. They're part of us. They are part of New Hope. So Will and Lily and Nicholas and Yuki and Julia and Julia, they're not just putting in time until they're old enough to make a difference. They're already part of our body. And as members of our body, they have roles to play in the health of us all. And that means that when Wendy or Caitlin take their week to serve in that room, they're not just filling some menial task. They're not just babysitting. They are serving members of the church, and they're serving Jesus. So thank them for me. Children are little sponges at this age, so we've implemented simple lessons in order to help familiarize them with the highlights of God's story from Genesis to Revelation. Um, back in November, I got to go and listen to N.T. Wright's lecture series, and I got to ask him a question which he didn't actually answer. But what he did say in regards to children's ministry is, Tell them the story, which we are. Each week, they learn a little bit about one of the people that God has used to advance his story through the ages. And I want to encourage you parents to do this as well. Make a habit of spending time in the word every day with your kids and start that habit early, like at six months. For our family, for the last 14 and a half years, this has meant that once PJs are on, we gather as a family, we read a Bible story, we pray together, and then we follow that up with a read-aloud book. You have to figure out what works for your family and your schedules, and it'll be different for each of us. Um, but I just wanted to suggest some resources. So if you click, um, yes, here. So one of the ones that I've found very useful for our family is this, the Bible in Pictures for Little Eyes. You can start that at six months, a year old, kids will get something out of that. It's a little tiny paragraph with a very colorful picture and some simple questions, and it kind of covers the whole story. Like, it's not like some of the children's books, which just kind of episodically tells, you know, highlights. 
Um, so I'd recommend that one. But the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think every family should have a copy of it because it does a fantastic job of linking everything that's happened through the Old Testament with what God was doing about having Jesus come. And it's an excellent, excellent book that um, Joe can speak to how, how helpful that's been in their families for nightmares and other things. But I can't, more, I can't strongly enough recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible for this age group. You can click on that. So the goal for our youngest children is to have church be a safe place, a fun place, a place where they make good associations. You know, let's make good memories. And while we still want the elementary age kids, the K through 5, to feel safe and have fun, the focus shifts for that age group. And our main goal for them is to ground them very solidly in the answer. And I owe much of my thinking on this to Dr. Peter Enns. He makes a valid point that the Bible is complex. It's paradoxical, and it's ancient. And while it is primarily a story, and at first glance, the stories seem great for children, once you actually read them, not so much. You can't even get through the first book of the Bible without dealing with drunkenness, and murder, and incest, and lies, and deceit, and adultery, and genocide, and betrayal, and a whole host of other things. It's R-rated material. It's hardly appropriate for elementary age kids as far as subject matter goes. But more than that, because the concrete mind of the elementary age children does not have the developmental ability to think abstractly and to consider paradoxes and to think about situations hypothetically, it's not doing them any favors on the faith level either. Matthew 18, 6 and 7 makes it very clear that there are serious consequences for harming these little ones. And I think that means harming them physically, or mentally, or emotionally, or spiritually. So we have been very careful about the type of curriculum that we present to, this, to these guys. Because we don't want to take advantage of their simple trust or bully them into the faith with fear, or lists of do's and don'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts, or misrepresentations of what God is like, which is easy to do when you're dealing with ancient texts. Peter Enns contends that if we use the elementary years to ground them solidly in the answer, which is Jesus, if we spend these years helping them know Jesus and all that he did and said and was and is, if we are properly equipping them for the questions that the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Daniel bring up, then we are doing them a big favor. So our goal, you can go ahead, Mark. Our goal is to so thoroughly acquaint them with God as we understand him in the second person of the Trinity that when they eventually go back to the revelation of God in the Old Testament, or to the movements of the Holy Spirit in the early church, they'll be able to approach the paradoxes and the poetry and the prophecies and the problems in such a way as to truly understand the heart of God and his plan for humanity and his holiness and his love in faith-helpful ways. So this year, the kindergarten to second graders are focused on what Jesus said and did as it relates to the kingdom of God. 
and the third to fifth graders are also learning about the kingdom of God, but from the perspective of those who came after the first century. Um, they're watching a video series called the Torchlighter Series, which highlights heroes of the faith who have persevered in the work that God gave them despite hardship and torture and sometimes even death. So they're learning about people like Augustine and John Bunyan and today is William Tyndale and Corey Ten Boom and about 14 others. It's a class full of boys, and my goal has been that they begin to understand that this following Jesus thing is not for sissies. It's not just about being nice and showing up on Sunday morning. I want them to understand that you have to be a real man to do this Jesus stuff. And I'm hopeful that this series is going to show them that it's a risky business, and it's a fun adventure. So here are some resources um, that I'd recommend for this um, elementary age. Like I said, the Peter Enns book is excellent. Um, and additionally, while we focus on the answer here at church, there's still a place for continuing to tell the whole story that God's working out. So um, for that, I would re recommend the um, Kenneth Taylor, the Bible story book. It's the most in-depth um, in children's Bible that I know, and it covers not only the major characters, but all the minor ones as well, like all, like all the kings, northern and southern kingdom, covers every single one of them. Um, but it, so it's the next best thing to reading the Bible itself, but it's written in a child-friendly story format. The Action Bible is awesome, um, and thanks to Shannon for introducing me to that. It's great for more visual learners because it's written in a graphic novel style, um, and again, it covers most of the biblical narratives. Before Joe comes back to finish off with our middle school and high school ministry, I just want to um, share a couple other things for parents. In House Church through the fall, we've been working through a book called The Feasts of Judaism, and one of my big takeaways is that God didn't set up worship of him to be age-specific. On the contrary, the feasts that the Jewish people were told to keep were, were set up to be a family event. Not only were children supposed to be part of the worship experience, the experience was designed to be child-friendly. Um, it was interactive and engaging, and it involved like setting up tents in your backyard and grabbing branches and everyone waving them around, and very tangible things like water and food and animals. And we understand that the restraints of our time and place in history, our culture and our comfort level, we're not going to totally emulate that. And we understand that we aren't going to come up with the perfect solution for how to worship God. But we're trying given who God has called us to be and what he's called us to focus on. And so while we do have age-specific curriculum to try and uh, address the developmental needs of the different kids, as a balance to that, we also have the children be part of the service at the beginning. And this is intentional, so that families can worship God together. And it's not supposed to be a passive thing. I've actually been wanting to speak to this for a long time, so here goes. Notes to parents about worship. The half hour that you have sitting together as a family on Sunday morning is a chance to spiritually mentor your children. 
which is your God-given role and responsibility. And it's also what you promise to do if you dedicate it to God. So the first thing you need to do is sit with your children. You can't mentor or teach or disciple them from a distance. And I know for some people who have multiple roles on Sunday morning, that doesn't always work. If Joe and Amy are both in worship, James needs somewhere to go, but that's why we're part of a community, because we have each other to help in this. And that's why when Joe said, we are all part of this, it's not just for parents, it's because we're all part of this. It's not just for parents. Joe and Amy or Kendall and Mark, we all have to work together to help do this thing. But sit with your children. Be an example. During one of the feasts, the Israelites were commanded to be joyful. And it didn't matter what life circumstances they were going through or what hardships they were dealing with. They were to be joyful. And we are commanded to worship. And it doesn't matter what kind of morning we had before we got here. And it doesn't matter whether we like the songs or we appreciate the worship leader's style of music or whether we're in the mood to worship God. It's a command. We are to worship God. So be an example for your children. And it's not about faking it or pretending that everything's okay. Worship is about acknowledging who God is. And that doesn't change with the kind of morning you have. It's about worshiping who he is and giving him the glory and honor that's due him. And that's what we need to be teaching and modeling for our children. Now, I know that worship is hard for them. I have a nine-year-old boy who is exhibit A for not wanting to be in worship. So here are some things that I have done to try, to help, try and help him focus and understand and find meaning in the worship time. Note common themes between the bulletin and the scripture and the song lyrics. Jason does a fantastic job of putting interesting pictures on the front of the bulletin. You should have seen the one he wanted to do for this one. Um, <laughs> I ixnate it. But I can't even tell you how many times I've had amazing conversations with the kids because they come up to me and say, what on earth is that about? And it's a wonderful segue into worship because then you can talk about, well, what are the songs that we're singing about? What is the scripture reference down here? What do you think that picture might be talking about? Point out meanings or get them to think about the words. So, for instance, like in that song, How He Loves, Oh, How He Loves Me, ask them what they think it means that he loves like a hurricane. What does that mean? Get them to think about the words, and you'll be amazed, like Joe with the stained glass window, what comes out, but we have to help them think about it. You could just get them to count repeated words. How many times are we going to say the word glory during worship this morning? And it may not be worship directly, but it leads them into thinking about it, and it helps them further, that, um, further down that discipline. There's no question that worship of God involves more than just singing. Really, every aspect of what we do, whether it's giving or serving or loving or going to work on Monday morning, are all part of worship. It's just that songs are very helpful because they provide a way for our head and our heart to be in unity and then in community with others to offer glory to God. But if worship with song is hard for your kids, then bring paper and markers. 
have them worship through drawing. Have them draw what the songs are, what the, what the music makes them think of, or what the words are saying. So these are just some of the ways that I've tried to do things with Jonathan or with other kids who are sitting next to me, but you all have ideas as well. So this is a conversation that we can have together or in house church or just over coffee. Let's talk about how do we help our kids worship. The community piece is really important too because, um, and here we parents have a role in discipling them as well. Because we need to teach them to help others worship as well. And a big way is by being engaged. More times than I care to say, I have been jerked out of mindless singing into real conscious worship because the child in front of me was completely engaged in the song and joyfully praising God. So I've had Margot and William be worship leaders for me because I've just been sitting there mouthing words and they've been worshiping God. So it leads us back to that, that these guys are not going to be the church. They are already the church and they are already fulfilling roles for God. But you can use that for your children. Let them know that how they choose to be engaged or not engaged makes a difference to the people around them. And be considerate. Um, generally, you know, you want to stay where you are so we're not all disruptive, but things happen with kids. You know, you have to walk out. But if we can go out and down the back and around instead of coming across, when we... When there's distraction, it interrupts what God's trying to do, what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. So we want to minimize the distraction for people who are engaged in worship and try not to be um, pulling them out of what God's doing in their hearts. So let's be considerate of people around us and let's teach our children as well that, you know, let's go down and around the back. This place is much more set up for that than, than chapel was. So let's take advantage of that. Um, and then finally, one last thing about sign-in and sign-out procedures. We've tried a few new things, trying to um, be welcoming to visitors and safe for our kids. Um, but I think what's not working is the signing in before the service. So we're going to get rid of that, and we'll go back to the whole come to the service. Unless you're signing your kids in to leave them there, if the children, um, which is the three-year-olds and up, are being part of worship here, then just come straight to the sanctuary and don't worry about the signing in. If you bring visitors and the visitors would like to go when the children are dismissed and the visitors would like to go and see where the classroom is, of course they're absolutely welcome to go down and do that. Um, but you don't need to try and get here early enough to sign kids in. Um, but please, please, please sign them out and be respectful of the teacher's time, which means um, get out of here and it's again set up really nicely that you just as you're on your way to the big white room fellowship hall um, the children's rooms are all the way along the way so just sign your kids out as you head for your coffee um, and it's good practice because when we're going to have two services we need to empty this room pretty quickly so get into the habit right now of not having your conversations here but getting your kids and getting your coffee and having your conversations with your coffee in your hand so I'll let Joe come and comments in closing.
with that answer, the name of Jesus, that we are able to put first things first. And it's with that answer, firmly placed in the hearts of our kids, that now we have to think about the next step in their life. Because the truth is, they'll grow up. And the hints of questions that they had in elementary school get much louder as they move through middle and high school. And by the time they get to college, they're screaming. And of course, we see in the church universal that that 18 to 30-year-old demographic leaving the church in record numbers. Ironically, when is it that we see them coming back? When they have kids. The point is that we're interested in using that middle and high school year years as a time when they can not only feel comfortable asking questions, but are also given questions that they haven't even thought of yet. And that they see that, that, that me and the other uh, leaders in our EDGE youth ministry are comfortable asking questions because some of the most fascinating questions, uh, fascinating conversations we've had in the EDGE happen when I'm able to ask them something that challenged the answer that they thought they had. Is, is God good all the time? In the face of, oh, yes, yes, God's good all the time. In the face of war, of genocide, of terrorism, of political divide, in the face of murder and injustice and poverty, in the face of, of waking up to a 9-11 or a Sandy Hook, in the face of seeing firsthand the church on its worst days, is God good in the light of that? And also, is God good in the light of my emotions? Uh, next slide. I love this book. I, 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 uh, I've read pieces of this as, we, as I've uh, started to work with middle schoolers, um, uh, middle school ministry by uh, the guys that do ministry, uh, middle school ministry at, um, at Willow Creek. They say this. Imagine a preteen painter with her limited emotional color palette primary colors that tell her I'm mad or I'm happy. Then without her actually realizing it, someone takes that color palette away and then replaces it with a significantly larger palette. One that's preloaded with a huge assortment of colors. New colors and new shades and new combinations and then she starts painting. But she has no prior experience applying these new color options to the canvas of life. So for a while, her painting is extra bold, and it's extra muddled. And she's creating art with patches of bright primary colors in one area of the canvas, and subtle nuanced shades in another. The combination is it's not attractive, and, and sometimes it's even jarring. But this experimentation is necessary for her to get to a place where she can effectively experience, understand, and articulate those new emotion color options. The challenge for the edge is to foster an environment where questions are welcome, where emotions can be wrestled with. It's a safe place, and we're able to hear those thoughts and that experience and empathize with them and tell them, you know what? I'm feeling that. And in the face of all that, we're able to wrestle through that conversation and then get to the end of it and share with them in the face of everything the world can throw at them, all of the pain, all of the suffering,
suffering, all of the violence in this world, I can then get them to that point where I can look them in the eye and tell them, I believe God is good, and I believe Jesus is the answer. That is what we attempt to make the edge all about. We do this with a couple of resources. Um, Next one. This is the book that we're using right now, Following Jesus. It's an incredible book. I recommend any house church studying it. It is not a high school ministry. It's not a youth ministry book. Written by N.T. Wright. It's a book on biblical reflections on discipleship. Um, this is a, a, a prime example of one of the things that we try to do in the edge. We do not try to give them just uh, you know youth-centered curriculum all the time. I try to give them material that's going to aim just a little bit above their heads so that they're always grasping for it. They're always growing. Um, they're using words that they have to look up. Hopefully, um, those of you that have edge kids, uh, you're reading this at home. Um, you're going over this at the dinner table. You're reading it together. This is not something that we encourage the kids to do on their own necessarily. They can do that if they'd like to. This is something you could do as a family. They're perfectly fine. Um, another resource is the seven ch- uh, checkpoints. This is what we the, the kind of the curriculum that we used last year, but it's something that we do all the time. Um, it's something that when we think about youth ministry, when we think about ministry in general, um, the seven checkpoints, authentic faith, spiritual disciplines, moral boundaries, meaningful friendships, wise choices, ultimate authority, and others before ourselves. These are things that not just embrace what youth ministry should be about. These are things that point us in the direction of discipleship and point us in the direction on that last slide of the church. Because what Jesus was really, really, really serious about, seriously, was not kids, necessarily. He was serious about humanity, about human beings, about the church, implementing the victory of the cross. And when we're doing these type of things, when we're giving them the answer, when we're welcoming them well, when we're loving them well, that is how we build Most holy God, we are humbled at this overwhelming gift that you have given us in the responsibility of building into your kids. We pray that as we can look into their eyes, we can empathize with them, we can sympathize with them, we can walk alongside with them, share with them that we've been there, that we've walked that road, that we've prayed those prayers. We've had those questions. We've been bored ourselves at times. We've been thrilled ourselves at times. And when we can think about what it means to build for your kingdom, and when we do it together, not in a sense that sees kids' ministry or child care as like something that happens on the other side of the building, but know that this is a living community of faith, one that is centered around cultivating a rich soil for all of our people and all of your people. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.